Hi, podcasting from New York. They say if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. This is Pushing Boundaries. Most of today's commentary on complex social issues is binary, unproductive, and flat-out lazy. With this podcast, I'm looking to hopefully elevate these conversations, and as a lifelong educator, hopefully learn a few things along with you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. So welcome to another episode of Pushing Boundaries. We have another guest adding to Black Man, My Story. We have Jeremiah Brown. Welcome, Jeremiah Brown. What's going on, boss? What's going on? Great pleasure, honor to be on here. Excited. Uh, this is uh, some time in the making, so I'm happy that we're, we made it happen. Oh, yeah. So you're right about this. It's been some time in the making. I'm thinking about it, two years. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to see you, you know? <laughs> Same and, and, and we go back because, you know, this story starts from, what, Oakland, California. Yeah, yep. And we had a, yes. we had a group yes. of mentees from New York City who were in Oakland, California for my brother's Keeper uh, conference. Right. Big, big, big show there. Um, yeah, okay. it was amazing. Definitely a great opportunity. I uh, met some amazing people such as yourself. And uh, and just seeing the transformative process, uh, it, it changed my life for sure. Same here. Same here. So I just want to, I just guess we'll start with our interview. It's, you know, the first question is, who are you? Was that the first question I have for you today is who are you? I'm a black man, a father, a husband, a change agent, an entrepreneur, and a speaker and author. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So there's a lot of the stories going out here in terms of the media, in terms of the uh the stories of black men and and you know the the uh the sexual the hypersexual activities, the 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 uh, crime um, uh, connection to crime, or mental health, or various issues that are plaguing um, the image of black men today. I just want to start with the first question: What's not true about you? Uh, what's not true about me is that I'm just an athlete. Uh, that I'm just a, a former professional athlete at that. You know, growing up in the inner city, uh, growing up in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Um, growing up in a situation where, you know, I watched my mother struggle uh, to pay bills. Uh, my father, um, he was present, uh, but it wasn't necessarily as consistent um, as me and my little brother may have needed him to be or my mother in terms of, you know, support. Uh, so when I when I look back at that and in the environment that I grew up in, where everyone was in this survival mode, all I knew were two things. Right. And this is a common theme. Um, or a common conception for, or reality for most inner city youth growing up in, 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 in poverty. And that is that uh, you could either do illegal activities um, and become this, this hood star or hood hero, or you could become a celebrity. Um, and in my case, that meant, you know, playing professional football. And, you know, we, our, our youth are often told that uh, it's the less than 1% that actually make it. And oftentimes, you know, I know for myself growing up, my teachers, my edu- my coaches, my even my parents would always say, like, what happens if you don't make it? Well, I made it, right? Like, I lived my dream. And for so long, 
that was my entire identity. That's what everyone referred to me as, is this football player, uh, this college football player, this professional football player. And to be honest with you, that's all I knew myself to be, you know, to where for many, many years, uh, when I looked in the mirror, that was all I saw was this football player. And me living my dreams of being that oftentimes, you know, sometimes not so much anymore. Um, and it's been 10 years uh, since I've last put on a, an NFL jersey or helmet uh, to where people refer that to me. And I felt like for so long, that was like my life's mission to uh, rewrite that narrative, to control my story. Um, hence, it took me 10 years to write my own book, <laughs> you know, because I've been battling so many uh, just inner inner wounds, you know, that I didn't necessarily take care of. Uh, in terms of like traumas that I experienced post football career. Uh, and uh, I would say more than anything that that is who I am not. I am not uh, just a football player or a former professional athlete. I'm so much more. And I've dedicated my life to being more, providing more. Um, but more importantly, I've dedicated my life to ensuring that youth that look like me, that may not look like me, uh, but that have this burning desire to be a professional athlete or a celebrity or some form of stardom and letting it consume them to the point where they don't necessarily see uh, that they are more and that they can do more in this world. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that there's two, there's, <laughs> there's two pathways, one, the criminal pathway or a celebrity pathway. And that's, right. and that's the kind of like the illusion of choices that are given often to uh, young men of color or people of color. And, yes. and then we know that the access to those things are, I mean, you have more access to the criminal element than you have to right. the other side of it. So how did you figure out, you know, because let's talk about the celebrity side of it. Where did you end up in terms of football? So I ended up, you know, signing a three-year deal uh, with the Jacksonville Jaguars of the NFL. And, uh, you know, Growing up, you would always hear, you know, particularly my coaches in the athletic space, you know, they would say the NFL is not for long, you know, and I tell kids all around the world when I speak is when they say not for long, I'm him, right? Like I'm, I'm not for long, you know, and my career was cut short after just one season uh, because I received a career ending a brain injury and a concussion. And, you know, it really spiraled me into a really, really deep depression that even led to suicidal thoughts, right? There was a time where I thought that this world would be a better place without me. And the reason why I felt that was because I never saw myself as more than just an athlete. My entire life, I, you know, I did martial arts, I played uh, sports, you know, I was this celebrity, right, in my neighborhood, at my school, and now I'm playing professional football where I'm signing thousands of autographs, I'm making thousands and millions of dollars, and people are looking to me as their savior, and, you know, that consumed me to the point where, you know, I, I say that there are two choices, and that's the illusion that there are two choices because, they're two easy choices, right? Like it doesn't necessarily um, take much work to, you know, find, you know, drugs in, 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 in an impoverished neighborhood or 
It is not difficult to, you know, necessarily have on the flyest outfit and, and, and be considered, you know, the flyest in the neighborhood or the flyest in school or make a ton of plays and score touchdowns, right? Like that's easy work, right? Like scoring touchdowns, scoring, you know, um, baskets, that's easy work. And because it's so easy to do those things, oftentimes we neglect the things that are extremely hard to do. And that, that, that's essentially what happened for myself. I mean, what, what, I mean, what was the process for you to come out of, like, I mean, so you lived in a celebrity status for a long time. Right. Long and time. then you had the, the, um, the career in, in uh, career ending injury with the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. Right. Yes, sir. What, how did you then take yourself off the stage? Right. And then start living a life that was, I mean, I guess a little more authentic and realistic for, for men. Well, I, I think for me, you know, well, I know for myself, it was extremely difficult, right? You know, the, the transition from playing sports my entire life and then actually making it, right? Like being the less than 1% that make it, 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 it almost does something to you where it, 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 it convinces, you know, and I, and I say us as other professional athletes, that have made it and have had successful careers, that this is who we are. This is our life's work. This is what we were born to do. And although it's a part of what we were born to do, it's not the only thing that we were born to do. And I was, I fell into this really dark place because everyone told me that I needed a plan B. Everyone told me that in terms of my educators, teachers, administrators, coaches, parents, even family members, everyone said that like, you might not make it and you need to plan for if you don't make it. And for me, I, it, it was all, and even now as an adult, it's very difficult for me to live with a plan B. Now I reframe it to where I have 10 plan A's, right? And they're all in alignment with each other. And because I didn't have a, a few plan A's, I just went to college because the, the university was paying for it. You know, I went to Wagner College on a full athletic scholarship. And to be honest with you, man, I, I didn't even apply to college when I was in high school, right? Because I just knew like, I'm gonna go to college for free. I'm one of the top athletes in New York State. You know, my coaches love me, but they didn't have the tools and the resources to equip me with the social emotional intelligence that I needed, you know, or even just the awareness to know that you, you are good enough to make it. And when you do make it, there's going to be a whole new set of skills that you're going to need, a whole new set of muscles uh, that you're going to need. And it's not going to be external. It's not going to be your biceps or your abdominals. It's going to be how strong is your discipline? How strong is your character to sustain this level of, you know, success that you're, you know, because there's going to come a whole new world that, that, that comes with it. And for me, I was not properly set up for success. So when I speak to our youth, when I speak to coaches, educators, uh, it is about equipping them both with the tools and resources, not to tell someone what they can't be, but to give them the tools and resources that they can be who they desire to be, but also set them up for success if that plan A does not work. But making sure that everything else that they do uh, is in alignment with their plan with their number one. So for me, it was football, 
football, making it to the NFL. I truly believe that God blessed me with the ability to sign that three-year contract, not to play football. And it took me 10 years to, or many years to have the maturity to even say this, but I truly believe that God's calling over my life was for me to reach this high level of stardom and, and, and fame with playing football to where now when I speak to our youth, I automatically have their attention because I've touched or I've experienced something that they aspire to. And I like myself growing up, there were people telling me what I couldn't do, but they've never gone the distance, right? In my neighborhood, in my school, my coaches. So they're telling me what I couldn't do. And I'm like, well, you couldn't do it. So you're telling me that I couldn't do it. And I was stubborn. And there wasn't anyone who actually did make it that could give me their experience and give me their, you know, trials and tribulations. So with that being said, you know, the lifestyle that I live now, I'm very, very fortunate that uh, I have this platform, you know, to use. So I'm, I'm glad you have the platform to share too, because you're right. Many of us haven't experienced that and been on that platform. I wonder, you know, when you become a, a champion of the game like that and you get to that level and you sign that contract, what is it like being amongst other champions in the game? So now you've all arrived from different neighborhoods, from That's different courses. And now you're standing together as champions saying, okay, now, so we're, we're better than the rest. Right. Now we got to be better than what's in this room. Um, That's a great question. Guys. And I, I'll never forget, you know, back in 2011, during my rookie year, you know, I'm sitting in a room, you know, with, you know, defensive backs. That was my position that I played in football. And I'm sitting in a room, you know, with defensive backs from the University of Alabama that just won a national championship, Auburn, USC, uh, Florida, all of these major FBS, you know, billion dollar, you know, football programs with five-star athletes in the room. And I'm from Wagner College, right? Like I went to a school in Staten Island, New York, that no one knew where it was. No one knew what division it played in. And I just remember being in that room where, the head coach tells everyone during the team meeting that it doesn't matter where you come from. And I needed that confidence because I'm looking around and I'm seeing national football championship rings. I'm seeing all of these power five, five-star athletes to where I knew I belong, but that inner doubt started to kick in, you know, that inner, you know, survival mode started to kick in where it was just like, ah, this is no longer comfortable. Like I'm no longer the best athlete, you know, we're all, the best athletes in this one room. And I learned really quick that when you reach that level of success in any space, that talent can only take you so far, you know? And for, for many of us, talent and sacrifices and discipline is what got us in that room. But what I realized being in that room was that resilience and character are the determining factors of who remains in that room. So I found myself in this room of 15, you know, defensive backs for all over the country. And at the end of rookie minicamp, they only signed three defensive backs of those 15 rookies. And I was one of them. And I tell people this story because oftentimes we tend to rely solely on our talent that we neglect that there's work that needs to be done in this new space, in this new arena that we're in. And for me, I knew that even though they won national championships and that they were five-star athletes and they were fast, I knew I was fast. I knew that I could ball. 
But the one thing that was different was I knew why I was there and I was there and I knew that my why was so strong that no one was going to step in front of me when things went well and when things didn't go well. And I think that talent works really, really well when things are going well. Uh, but then when things aren't going well, you can't, you can't, you know, turn to your talent. You have to turn to the resilience. You have to turn to your why. You have to turn to, you know, the discipline, the sacrifices. So, you know, for me, I realized being in that high intensity, high performance space that, you know, talent can only take you so far. For So for me now as a speaker, you know, I pride myself on, you know, God's gift of giving me the ability to speak in front of a crowd and knowing that, less than 1% of the people make it to the NFL and that top two scariest things in the world is heights and public speaking. And God's given me the ability to still be afraid of heights, but, you know, know that I can stand in front of thousands of people or hundreds of people and just tell my story and not necessarily be as scared as I would if I was 20,000 feet in, in, in the air, you know? So I, I take that with pride, but I also you know, I'm current, I'm always on a quest of looking for ways on how to get better as a speaker. So I'm taking storytelling classes, you know, I'm spending thousands of dollars into my professional development, because I know that, you know, there's levels to it, you know, and uh, so I would say, w when it comes to the levels of being in that space, um, talent may get you in the room, but it won't keep you in the room. Mm. Let's move on to the next question. What is true about you? Uh, what is, you know, that I'm a man of God, that I love being with my family. You know, you know, I grew up in a situation where my mother was always in grind mode. I get my grind. I get my passion from my mother, right? Like she was someone who, you know, she put 70 hours a week into work. Like she made sure that me and my little brother didn't want for anything. That's where I get my grind from. But because of that, sometimes we didn't necessarily spend as much time together as we, you know, may have could have because she had to do what she had to do, you know, and I, and for many years, I would resent or fault my parents, coaches, educators for what they didn't do, you know, and then as becoming a father, as becoming an educator, I had to realize, you know, in working alongside and serving alongside many parents and educators that everyone has their own story and everyone had to overcome many uh, hurdles that were either in their control or wasn't in their control, you know? Um, and redlining was something that heavily impacted, you know, my family where my lineage is in the projects, right? Like you go back generation, generations, like we, we from the projects. So there wasn't much resources in the projects for someone like my mother to, you know, know about more or seek more other than just surviving to make sure that, you know, we had the sneakers when we needed it. Christmas, there were presents under the, the Christmas tree. She was at every parent teacher conference. Like that's essentially, you know, how I was raised. And so for me, you know, the biggest truth about me is, you know, I, I love being with my family. And I, and I tell people all the time, and they, they don't, they don't believe this, uh, that I don't, I don't want to work, <laughs> you know, like I, I don't want to, um, get up every day and clock in and clock out. Uh, and because I know that about my, myself, 
I know that the work that I am doing, I've been called to do it. And God is equipping me with the tools and the resources to do it because it's like a burning desire in me that wakes me up every day, you know, that puts me in front of the computer that will have me spend $10,000 on a course or, you know, just, I mean, whatever it takes to provide the best overall experience for our youth and educators is truly what I feel I've been called to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking global, you know, I feel like I've been called to do this work globally. And I know that in order for me to do it, I need to be better. I need to always continue to learn and figure different ways on how I can impact our youth and, and, and our educators. So, um, yeah, man, that's, 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 it's, 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 it's a lot, but that's that's the truth about about me. No, we appreciate you sharing this. Um, what now? You, you you spoke a lot about your mom, so I'm just thinking about you as a as a black man. How did you you know who? What are the ingredients that that made you a man and a black man? Oh, for sure, uh, my my father for sure. You know, my father. You know, he he has he has over ten children. Let's just leave it at that and you know, he tried his best in giving me and my little brother his time. And I believe he he achieved in giving us his time. Now, I don't know if that was because of my mother or what, but one thing I, I, I love and I admire about my parents so much is that they both had their own struggles um, in terms of, you know, my dad, he dealt with a ton of um, drug and alcohol abuse uh, for many years. Uh, and he, you know, was in and out of rehab, you name it. He's a, a former veteran. Um, so the PTSD that comes with that. And, you know, so with that being said, and, and I guess the baggage that he came with coming into meeting my mother and my mother growing up in a survival mode situation her entire life and her dealing with, you know, losing her mother at a, a young age, there were some like heavy, heavy social emotional uh, deficiencies there. And the one thing that I admire so much about both of my parents was two things. One, they never let their battles become me and my little brother's battles, right? Like they, they tried their best to go through what they were going through and not let it impact our day-to-day -day routine. That was one uh, in which that helped me become uh, a, a Black man, uh, with resilience because I knew things were happening. Uh, but then two, whatever they lacked, they found a way to position me in an environment where they had the resources to give me. And I'll never forget this uh, one day in church years ago, the pastor says that every single person in this room was planted with a seed. Uh, now, what you do with that seed is really going to be contingent upon the environment that you put yourself in. And I felt like my parents always did a phenomenal job in making sure that like, okay, Jeremiah, Malcolm, they're special. Now, if we put them in the neighborhood school, they're going to be with the neighborhood people and they're going to talk the neighborhood language. Uh, so my mother, at a really young age, she made sure that she put me in a school outside of my neighborhood. 
And at the time, I didn't know why. I'm like, those are the homies. Like, I want to go to school with them. You know, so when I come home, we have something to talk about. And when I was home during the summers, my friends were so close. And I was always like the outsider, not realizing that I don't know if it was by design or not. But I do know that by being the outsider, it created this sense of I always wanted more than the block. I always wanted more than what I was limited to. So I didn't go to the neighborhood school. I went to school in Park Slope. I grew up in Fort Greene. Um, I didn't go to um, the school in the neighborhood. I ended up um, starting at Boys and Girls and then going to um, Grand Street Campus, right? So it's just like all of these different things uh, really shaped just my overall experience as a man and giving me the tools and the resources. And I would say for my father, him putting me in martial arts is really, I know for a fact what shifted my experience as a black man, because I didn't just go to just like nothing against like Tiger Showman's or, you know, I went to a black owned mixed martial arts uh, program in, in Fort Greene and my karate instructor, he was a black man that had an entrepreneurial spirit. He was a father, he was a husband. And I got to see that and he held me accountable and he did things and he spoke to me in ways that I needed to be spoken to, you know, and he really filled a ton of gaps that my dad, you know, um, didn't have the social emotional intelligence to, to, to fill, you know, and I think that when you talk about a village, um, my parents did a phenomenal job in creating a village around me and my little brother to ensure that whatever they lacked, we had. And I think when I speak to parents, I'm always talking about a village. You know, when I speak to educators, I'm always talking about a village. When I speak to our youth, I'm always talking about a village um, and being intentional on that village because on the other end, I know that I wasn't the only kid growing up in my neighborhood who was experiencing these things. And their parents, um, unfortunately, wasn't intentional with you know, creating this environment to protect the seed of their child and to nourish them and to provide. Uh, so, you know, it was a village of people that is responsible for me being the man that I am today. The black man that I am today. Wow. So, so I was just thinking as you were speaking, I was thinking like, so they gave you, they, they created like sort of like a, a community within a community, sort of like a shell, almost like a, um, uh, like a like a shelter or uh, uh, fallout yes. shelter within yes. the midst of chaos going on around you. How did you, as you as you begin to ex excel in your in your your athletics and and your life, did you ever feel isolated or alone in that process? And then how did you Absolutely. go about finding those connections? Absolutely, man. I, I I felt isolated because I was going against the grain. You know, everyone in my neighborhood was going with the grain in terms of making the easiest choices. So every, like I said, everyone in my neighborhood went to school together. So because everyone went to school together, when we were outside playing on Saturday, Sunday afternoons, you know, playing tag and all of these different things, they had like side conversations that I just was there, but it was kind of like, but I was cool. You know, I was just like the cool kid and I was fast and I was athletic, but I didn't share the day-to-day -day experience with them. And, you know, experiences create, you know, brotherhood, fellowship. So 
because I wasn't there for those. And then when my father put me in martial arts, I initially didn't want to go to martial arts because I was like, man, now this is another opportunity for me not to be around my friends. And I didn't realize what was happening at the time. I'm just thinking of like, man, I want to be with my friends, man. I just want to, you know, and while I'm, while everybody's on the block, hanging out, having fun, I'm got my karate uniform on karate bag and I'm walking to, you know, my karate, you know, dojo. And, you know, my friends would laugh and be like, oh, look at Jeremiah, look at him. And then they would be like karate kid and, they would, you know, cut all of these jokes. And I didn't realize at that time, you know, God was really that pain that I was feeling of being alone and like, man, I'm the only one from my neighborhood going to this karate school. Why I got to go to, and I would always tell my mom, ask my mom and my dad, like, man, why I got to go to karate? You know, why I got to do all of these different things? Like, why can't I just be a normal, regular kid? And, you know, I don't, they didn't say like this sweet motivational quote of like, you know, you're going to be this amazing kid and all of those different things, you know, even though they, they always affirmed me and my little brother and always told us that they loved us and stuff. It was in those moments that it was just like, because that's what, that's what we have you doing. That's it. There's just really no conversation of, of why this is just what we believe is, is best for you. And I don't know if that was God, you know, you know, using them uh, to orchestrate. I, I don't know, but I'm just forever grateful because at a very, very young age, I understood what it meant to be alone, to go against the grain and to know that that's the only way to get a different result, you know? Mm -hmm. And I learned at a really young age what insanity means. And I'll never forget one of my high school coaches, you know, we had a football field uh, that was literally, there was a gate that separated Brooklyn Tech's football field from my, um, my housing complex. And I would literally hop that gate, be in there by myself. Now, while my friends are playing, running around, just sitting, smoking, doing whatever, I would literally hop the gate. It was not legal to do this. But I would hop the gate. I would be there by myself. I'd be running sprints. I'd be throwing the football against the gate. And I'd just be doing like, yo, why is Jay over there? Like, and it was never like he thinks he's better than us. It's just like, yo, what is he doing? And I couldn't even explain it. I just, it was just something inside of me that I was just like, I want something different. And my coach one day, he's driving by, he gets out and he's like, yo, Jay, what are you doing? We just had practice. And I said, you know what, coach, I, I just felt like I needed to do more. And he looked at me. He said, man, if there's one thing about insanity is that if you do the same thing that everyone else is doing in your neighborhood, you're going to get the same result. But if you continue to do more than what is required, as a result, you're just going to get a different result and um, or an experience. And I, that never really left my spirit you know, or just my day-to-day -day thought process. So, you know, that that's one of those transformative moments for me. All right. Let's, so let's go back into football because, you know, that that is the anchor for you, a lot of your success in terms of the experiences and some of the lessons, right? So what yeah. were some of the lessons that came out of football for you that, that extend to real life? So I'll start here. You know, a lot of times people say, you know, and, and, and my coaches, which I don't say a lot of people, my coaches would often say that, you know, football 
shapes character and sports shape character and they de and develop it and all of these different things and you gain so many you know learning experience and resources from it and i agree to disagree with that because although you understand or i under i was experiencing at a really young age that me not going to this party or me not going and doing something foolish with my friends after school and actually going to practice or me not, you know, hanging out with my lady friend and, you know, going to practice and making sacrifices and having the discipline to do my homework and all of these different things. I had that within inside me, right? Like I was being shaped and molded by it. Uh, but no one took the time to be intentional on, okay, Jeremiah, now this is how you use these tools outside of football. Because I knew how to be disciplined in football. I knew how to be accountable in football. I knew how to make sacrifices. I knew how to outwork everyone in the room. And above all, I knew how to believe in myself, right? Like you couldn't tell me that you could stand in front of me and beat me. And if you did, I'm coming back, right? Now in the real world or I, in real world being AKA life outside of sports, I didn't know how to be a, the same accountable, right? So they say, oh, but you know, you had to wake up every single day at 4.30 in the morning for workouts. You should be able to do that as an adult. No, I had to wake up at 4.30 in the morning, right? And the biggest deficiency that most student athletes have is time management. Why? Because every single day of your life is mapped out for you. <laughs> From the moment you started playing football all the way to when you're no longer playing football, you know when you have training, you know when you have class, you know when you have study hall, and it gets worse as you progress in the sport to where everything is mapped out for you. So now you're in this world where like you get to choose when you wake up, you get to choose, you know, if you believe in yourself or not, you know. And I know for myself, you know, so to, to answer your question, there were many things that I did learn in the sport of football in terms of accountability, in terms of discipline and communication and teamwork, leadership, all of these different things, but in my sport. So yes, innately, I'm a team player, but I don't know how to be a team player in a school environment mm. where educators don't really care about these kids. But like, I, I don't know how to, because in football, it's a bit different. In sports, it's a bit different. Like basketball, you can hit somebody with a strong pick or you can take them to the run and dunk on them. But, you know, in the workplace, if you're working with individuals who don't really have these kids' best interests at heart, how do you handle that? Right? I can't get physical with you. I have to be able to communicate effectively. So one of the things that, you know, I've been extremely blessed to, you know, work with educators on is well what does it look like when you create an environment that is inclusive uh and uplifts educates uh our youth right what does that look like and really getting them to understand that we it is our not power as educators to tell them that they need to do these things but to give them and equip them with the tools and resources on how they can do it themselves. So none of my coaches from like high school, because I started playing football in high school and not many people know that about my story is mm -hmm. the misconception is that I started playing football when I was really, really young. 
and the 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 honest truth is I started playing football in the ninth grade um and from boys and girls high school all the way to Grand Street campus um where I ended up graduating and you know going up to college from but you know Mike's no one took the time to say Jeremiah or students you you waking up 4.30 in the morning is so that we can get so much done and being productive with no distractions so that when you do start your day, we don't have to worry about anything. Now you can, instead of focusing on football throughout your day, you can just focus on your classes. So now when you get in the real world, it's beneficial if you work out first thing in the morning. It's beneficial if you get your work done first thing in the morning especially if you're a father or a husband, like, because what I've realized being an entrepreneur, full-time entrepreneur now is these skills that we're talking about. When I wake up and my family wakes up, I'm no longer on my time. I'm on their time. And I had this battle because I was waking up with them. And then it's like, all right, time out guys. I got to go get this work done. I'll be back. And it's like, no, like, they need me in some of these spaces. So what I had to re realize is, okay, if I wake up at three, four in the morning and I work out, I get my work done and now it's seven, 8 a.m. like I did back in high school and college. Now when my family wakes up, I'm, 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 I'm all theirs. Just like I was my class, you know what I mean? So uh, essentially, you know, what it comes down to is I was able to gain a ton of, you know, different lessons and resources, but no one was intentional with teaching me how to, um, everyone told me that they would transfer. These are transferable skills in which they are, but no one told me that you had to be intentional with understanding how to be competitive without being physical, how to be accountable without yelling at someone how to communicate, to listen, not necessarily to, you know what I mean? So all of these different things is what I've really committed my life's work to in terms of, you know, equipping our youth and educators with. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess I had to go through it to be able to speak to it with the, with the passion, experience, I'm a fortitude that I do. Well, that, you know, I'm glad you said that because never thought about that, but, you know, I guess the lessons are there, but how do you then translate those lessons to a new life, a yep. new way of doing things that doesn't look like the former life? Yep. Athlete. <clears throat> that, that's a very good point. And I'm sure many people struggle, struggle with that. You know, we find that many professional athletes, they do really well in the game, but when they come out of the game, they lose all of their money. Right. right? They lose all of their money. And they, form, you know, like, there was another guy, I guess, from uh, Cleveland Cavaliers who was just arrested the other day. You know, mm -hmm. with some serious mental health issues and alcohol, yep. right? And so yep. that is a story that that is common. Right? And you're, so yep. you're right about that not translating. So going back, and I know we had a conversation years ago about this, and you told me about um, there was a moment when they offered financial literacy for uh, incoming uh, football players in the NFL. Yeah, and you told me about you know the stories they were saying they were they were telling they were teaching you guys in that room, and when you went to parties. You would go to parties 
and everybody would spend all this money and they would pass the bill to the, to the guy who had the least yeah. amount of money. Yeah. Right? So just tell us about, you know, just that conflict <laughs> and how you were able to walk away from that. Having- yeah, man, you know, yeah. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, what I've realized in professional sports is that, you know, we, it, it falls into not necessarily taking care of each other, you know, and I played for an organization that, you know, I have a ton of respect for, you know, but I am a Jets fan by uh, just growing up. I was a Jets fan growing up and I ended up playing for the Jacksonville Jaguars and professionally. So I grew up being a fan of a team that's not accustomed to winning, put it that way. And then I then played for a team that wasn't accustomed to winning. So what I realized in the locker room was the reason why we weren't accustomed to winning was because everyone was so young, right? When you are a team who traditionally has, you know, number one draft picks after number one draft picks, you know, you are a young team. And with youth, there is not much maturity. And for my my rookie year, I'll never forget, we went from having a you know, financial literacy uh, expert come in to speak to us on financial literacy to going out two weeks later and the veterans celebrating the rookies for making the 53-man roster. And, you know, we're all having a good time, right? Like you're talking, we're sitting at the table with, you know, cats who are making $20, $30 million a year. And, you know, me and my teammates, we're only making 600K a year. You know what I mean? And the bill was almost $30,000. And they're like, wow. I, I Rooks, <laughs> appreciate you. You know, appreciate the meal. Welcome to the league. You know, like, and that was a part of, I guess, the hazing process for them. But on, uh, how will we say this? a in a winning culture from just me sharing stories and breaking bread with some other brothers who have played professionally you know I had some brothers in Green Bay I had some brothers in um you know um uh what was it um Seattle I had some brothers in um you know Boston so in these spaces yeah there were hazing there were you know haircuts and a bunch of different things but when it came down to taking care of the rookies and the younger um, dudes it was more of like a mentorship thing and what I've realized the consensus was on non-winning cultures was it was more of a like not taking care of each other if that's the best way I could describe it it wasn't really a culture of like you know what like let me take care of this rookie let me make sure he has all the information that he needs and as opposed to let me make this rookie feel maybe how I felt when I was a rookie. You know what I mean? And that was a that was one of the most difficult experiences for me because that wasn't who I was. I was always the guy in college where, you know, the other guys would, you know, do their thing when it came to the rookies or the freshmen. And I would always kind of look at them as, you know, allies, right? Like, hey, what you need? How can I help you? You know, you running your sprint. Other guys like, oh, he's going to pass out. I'm like, hey, drink this Gatorade real quick. Like, 
you're going to do another one. And as a result, you know, um, I have lifelong friends, you know, because of that. But just that experience of being in the NFL and being around, you know, some people who may not have had my best interest at heart because I was a threat. You know, we're in an environment where these are grown men with mortgages, families, bills. I'm this rookie with no bills, no family um, in terms of kids. And I'm cheaper to afford. So I can take their job. And that's how they were looking at me, you know, as a liability instead of an asset. And as a result, you know, we got uh, we got picked on a bit. <laughs> we mm. got picked on a bit. Uh, but the financial literacy portion of it uh, was something that changed my life and is something that sticks with me to this day. So you took something away from those sessions. Yeah, man. The biggest thing that I took away from the sessions was um, understanding like what your net worth is, understanding how to uh, use money and not necessarily just consume money. And um, from, you know, making investments, having investments, um, having a diverse financial portfolio and why, you know, athletes go broke. Right. So the, the misconception is that these athletes go broke because they're just spending a ton of money in the club and they're doing all of these different things. And that in some cases, you know, they showed us the Antoine Walker story, you know, and if you're familiar with Antoine Walker, this man, he, you know, made over a hundred million dollars in the NBA and he was hanging out with Michael Jordan. Now, even though he is wealthy and he's made over $100 million, Michael Jordan, um, even at the time in the 90s, was projected to be a billionaire one day uh, because of his brand and what he did for the Nike brand and the game of basketball. They tell you in the NFL not to hang out with people who are not in your tax bracket. Mm. And it's not because, you know, you don't deserve to be with them. It's just because... When you get a $30,000, so for me, every Tuesday, I would get a check for like $28,000, right? I'm in Florida, no state taxes, so I was able to, to bring in more money. You got someone like Glenn Gabbert, who was our starting quarterback at the time, or Maurice Jones-Drew, who just signed a deal worth $30 million. Maurice Jones-Drew is getting $680K every Tuesday, <laughs> after taxes right mm -hmm. so that's different so now you know we go into the same club or we go to the mall and or we go to the car dealership we can afford the same things like i can get something you can get something but if i spend my whole thirty thousand dollar check on this car that's nothing for you that's a bracelet or a watch and what happens is a lot of times the world, they look at professional athletes as so women, even my friends, because I have the NFL badge next to my name, they think I'm, I got millions in my account when I don't, right? So oftentimes guys try to, you know, hey, I'm in the league. I deserve to drive a Lamborghini. Great. You can afford a Lamborghini. So you think you can. And this is what these financial literacy, you know, courses would, would teach us is just because you can purchase something doesn't mean you can afford it. And, you know, they break it all the way down to 
if you made $10 million, that is forever money. If you made a million dollars, that's not forever money. But a million dollars that has already been taxed, a million cash in your account, depending on where you live, that could stretch you for 20 years. If you live off of a salary of $75,000 or $60,000 a year that you pay yourself, right? Like the same way you would get paid from, you know, um, a job. You put this in a separate account. It will pay you deposit a certain amount of money every two weeks into your account. You could live off that a million dollars, right? 10 million, you could probably live 200K, you know, a year. But what happens is these guys, they'll purchase these Lamborghinis, they'll purchase these homes, they'll purchase all of these lavish things, not realizing that no more money's coming in. So everything is depreciating, everything is chipping away. And the best analogy that I use for our youth is, you know what it's like when you go to a store with a $20 bill. The moment you break that $20 bill, it's over, right? But the longer you can keep that $20 bill, a $20 bill, you got $20. But the moment, you, even if you buy a piece of candy, now you got a 10, five singles and right, it's all broken up. And that's essentially the same way, but just in a bigger pot, in a bigger picture. So for me, you know, uh, before I even retired from working in education uh, last year, you know, I saved my entire salary, you know, um, for one year. And it was it was tough, you know, but I had to live without receiving the money and condition my mind to know that there's no money coming in even though there's money coming in, you know? So uh, without my experience of playing in the professional sports and learning how to pay my bills six months in advance and, you know, having, you know, savings and financial portfolios and investments and all of those different things, you know, again, that's what I've dedicated my life to, you know, getting our youth to understand. And I'll say this on financial literacy, this will be the last thing, is I signed a three-year deal worth $1.5 million dollars you tell a kid that they're like, wow, okay, great. They don't see it the way it's actually given. Three years, 1.5 million. No, it's not three years, 1.5 million annually. It is 500K a year times three, right? So, and let's say you go from the active roster to the practice squad. This can happen in professional sports, particularly football speaking, where week one, you could be on an active roster making $28,000 as a rookie every Tuesday. And then week three, they put you on a practice squad. Now you're making 6,000, right? And now you, you, your, your salary is fluctuating. This is all contractual. This is all in your contract. So yes, you were, you the, the cap was 500K that you could have made in a 2012 season but you only made 280 because you spent more time on the practice squad than you did on the active roster. So it, it, it's, it, it's so much that goes into it. And when I share these stories with our youth, you know, they're, they're oftentimes blown away. Cause it's like, yo, I, I never thought that I never realized that. And that's why the, that plus the lack of um, preparation, you know, that, we get as professional athletes, you know, nowadays it's different 
nowadays major universities and you know professional programs they have programs in place that help you know students and professional athletes transition out of the world of sports you know such as my program lead and um i designed it and i developed this work because our youth need it you know our educators need it and um it's just information but also how to apply it wow Whew. Man, you gave us a lot. You gave us a lot and, and, and extremely useful information. I can't imagine uh, saving my salary for a year. I mean, that's a good strategy, though, especially before yeah. retiring or something or changing, you know, your lifestyle. It's a very yeah. good strategy because it definitely, you know, helps you to wean off and change behaviors and yep. withdraw from some bad behaviors. Yep. And, you know, use, you know, use it to mobilize you in terms of the way you should be living. You know, yes. because we're caught up in this race of, of, having things and luxuries yes yes uh, you don't have to have them but you have to make a step toward realizing you don't have to have them right absolutely wow so okay so how did you and this is the, let's get into some of the some of the um some more emotional talk how did you learn how to love as a black man that's a great question uh i would say through a ton of pain you know, I would say that what, what taught me how to love was, you know, some of the, the pain that I went through, you know, growing up, you know, watching my mother struggle, you know, seeing what, you know, my father, you know, did, you know, to my mother from an emotional standpoint as a black man, you know, and the pain that he put her through, um, seeing that, witnessing that for many years, I had resentment towards my father. And I'm just even resenting my mom, like, why would you go through those things? Not realizing as an adult, you know, it's not easy to find love, you know, especially when you're grinding all the time and you're providing in which my mom, she shared that. Um, she didn't share that burden. She held that, you know, proudly. And, you know, so me experiencing that really and then going through, you know, not trying to be my dad and then being my dad in terms of like how to deal with women. Um, and then uh, I would say that when answering your question, there are many different ways to love. And I would say in terms of how I love my wife, you know, how I love my, my family, how I love my children. Um, I wouldn't say that they are different, but they are different uh and, and I'm, I'm struggling to i guess find the words but you know me experiencing what my mom went through and how my father treated her really taught me how to love uh, my wife in a way that you know i'm extremely blessed because i know what i have you know when i speak to my dad sometimes he would say that man i didn't value what i had you know your mom is an amazing woman and all of these different things and if i would have just understood what I had instead of trying to get more and he told me he said look man you know there's always going to be other women there's always going to be you know other people that you could love and other situations that you can create and um if you have a really really good situation at home you need to protect that and these are the things that I did that led to me not protecting it and that's being with the, these people and, and he told me he was like look you're gonna have to tell your friends not to invite you out and that's going to hurt. And I'm like, why would I do that? 
And he was like, because in order for you to love this woman the way um, she deserves to be loved, you need to position yourself to be in an environment that's going to support what you feel. So you need to be with people who are also married and you need to be in these environments and seek these. And that's what I didn't do. You know, I, I didn't have the courage to tell, you know, my friends, you know, I'm not going out, you know, and and me doing those things really, really helped. It really, really allowed me to just understand, you know, how to love her. And then as an adult, you know, how to love my mom, you know, and not resent my mom. You know, I would always, as an adult, be like, oh, man, mom, you want me to do this? I got to do that. And now it's just like, man, I'm so blessed for all that my mom has done for me and my little brother, you know, so that, that that's, that's, that's a very heavy question, but, uh, you know, and, but it's a great question because <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about so many different people, you know, that, that, that I, that I love. So let me, let me keep pushing you. Um, so oftentimes, you know, men demonstrate their love by what we do, uh, acts. Yes. How do you extend on the acts to whatever i mean so one i guess what what other parts of love is there right other than the mm -hmm. act right and how do you mm -hmm. how did you learn it and then begin to extend yourself in those areas to your family um i would say outside of acting um i'm not 100 percent sure how i would answer that question um i think for myself when I think of love and this is probably this is not a good thing uh, but when I think of love I think of it being transactional I think of it being you know something that and this may not be right um and you know as I talk through it you know this is a question I've never been asked before but um and I heard this question on one of your other podcasts and I was like oh man I gotta prepare for this but I'm just like you know what like I'm just going to, you're just going to get the rawness of me and, and my response. And this is that, you know, I, I see love. As, I've always seen love as like this transactional thing of, you know, you, you show me and, and hence one of my love languages being, you know, uh, acts of service and, you know, gifts and affirmations. Those are all transactional, you know, like for so long, I felt like my wife, needed to affirm me I felt like she needed to you know tell me that she loved me or, or show me that she loved me by either getting me a gift or something or whatever it was that was how I gauged it and in in some ways immaturely I still do when I think about it you know what I mean on, on how I show you know my love to my wife or you know even my kids you know when I think about the word transactional one of the biggest reasons why I decided to resign from, you know, working in education wasn't really because of my business. Uh, it was more so because I felt like I was not giving my children the time and the attention that they deserved. So for me, transactionally, I felt heavy on my heart that I know what it's like being an educator of a child whose mother and father is working their butt off, working their tail off, but their child comes to school and they're just like emotionally a wreck. And it's because their parents are grinding, making sure that they have all of these nice clothes and shoes, but they aren't necessarily 
you know, having these conversations, maybe even telling them that they love their child. So for me, uh, I, I would really answer your question by saying that, unfortunately, I see love as a transit, a transactional um, thing. So I'm, I'm glad that you grappled with that, and I'm glad you listened to the other podcast. You know, so you know that was coming. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and, and if you notice, every one of the brothers there, you know, and the other ones, they all, you know, struggle with that. So I just wonder if, you know, for black men, you know, how do we move beyond the transactional? Um, there's the saying it, you know, um, there's the compliance part of it. There's a transactional part of it. And then there's the the moments when when that other stuff comes out of you, when you have to, then the love begins to, you know, it's, it's when you get into those places, I think, where you're not comfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And then how do you express it and extend yourself? But we don't have to have the answers today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But that's good though. That's that's you know, as a father, you know, of a of, of a boy and a girl, you know, uh in which they'll be, you know, a man and a woman one day. That's something that I need to figure out, <laughs> you know. Um, that is, you know, because I, I was talking to one of my brothers, and you know, his daughter is around the same age as my son, which is six years old. And he goes, you know, I refuse to put, you know, his daughter was acting up at the at the dentist and they were going to, he was going to take her to the movies, dad or daughter date. And he's like, man, she was acting up. So I had this say, like, we not going to the movies. And he was like, man, I love her so much. And I refuse to ever put my hands on my daughter because I don't ever want her to think that it's okay when she gets older, that some man could just beat her because she's not acting the way he wants her to act. So he says, all I have is my word. And that stuck me and like, wow, you know, like I never would have thought, you know, I grew up in a home where, you know, my mom, she was very quick to get the belt, you know, so, um, and and in many ways, it it shaped me, you know, uh, so when he, but when he shared that with me, you know, I was like, wow, that is, you know, and he's like, man, you know, I just want her to know that I love her, you know, no matter what. You know, so listening to what you said, it made me think of that moment and 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 how he chose to, I guess, show her. Um, but is that transactional? I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know. Or is it or is it is it loving without an interest in one's personal interest, but an interest in that person in terms of seeing the best for them and then making that hard decision that so that they realize it, even though you may not be winning at that moment with them in terms of liking you. You know, um, feeling about the connection, but making a decision that's for the greatest good for that person, thinking outside, being selfless. Yes. No, that's just a thought. Yeah, I don't no, have absolutely. the end. I think it's it's something that we continue to grapple with, um, and we'll continue to grapple with it for many years to come. What is love? Absolutely. Is it just um, a word in the dictionary? You know, um, I don't know. But um, how good. do we express it? How do we express it in a way or how do we get on the same page with our loved ones in terms of how right. we interpret it and do it? But, right. So I guess I want to let's move on to the next question. Now, you talked about, you know, falling into a state of and I think this will probably be our last question. You fought, you, you, you talked about uh, falling into a state of um, depression, right? A deep depression. Yes. yes. What did you do to get yourself out of it? How did you heal yourself? 
Man, you know, I think for me, <clears throat> it took it took time. You know, it took time for me to really get myself out of that that depressive state. Uh, what what really helped me was gaining clarity on what um, skills I had. You know, I think I really struggled with who I was. Excuse me, outside of my sport because. When I looked in the mirror, I only saw a football player. You know, I didn't see a speaker. I didn't see an educator. I didn't see a mentor. I didn't see a change agent. Um, I knew I always wanted to be a father, you know, and a husband, you know. So I can't say I didn't see those things, but I was just like, how could I be a father, you know, when, you know, I don't even know who I am? How can I be someone's husband if I don't know who I am? And... I was really, really depressed because everyone was telling me how great I was. Everyone was telling me how special I was and all of these things that I couldn't even see in myself. And I would say that, you know, Onitha Swinton changed my life back in 2014 when... I thought I wanted to become a personal trainer because all of my big bros, my mentors, that's what they did, right? Like when you stop playing sports, again, you result to what's easy, right? So when you grow up in poverty, what's easy is the drugs that you have access to and, you know, chasing fame, right? That's just an easy choice. But going to school on time, doing your work, applying to college, doing all of the things that aren't easy, that's what we run from. So now professional athletes or just performer athletes in general, collegiate included, now when you no longer have this sport, it's like, well, what do I do now, right? Like I have this degree, but I didn't really go to school to be a sociologist, right? Like I didn't, I didn't go to school to do that. I just took it because it was easy work <laughs> again. So now as a former professional athlete or athlete in general, I went what was what was easy. I trained my entire life. So now I can help people train. And I decided to become a personal trainer. You know, I ended up speaking at um, John Jay School for Law, where Onitha was the principal at. And my little brother went there. So my little brother went to that school. And that's how I ended up speaking at the school. So that's how we met. And then she was like, oh, man, you know, I just had a child and I, I need a trainer. And I was probably her trainer for like two weeks. And after the first week, going into the second week, she looked at me and she was just like, Jeremiah, like, you're a great trainer, but there's just something that I just can't pinpoint right now, but our youth need you. And those were her exact words. And she was like, I don't know what that looks like, but our youth, they need you. And seeing how the kids responded to you and she was just like, you know, selfishly speaking, I need you. And I would love it if you would, you know, consider, you know, working in, in, in education. Me and my team, we can help you. And I sat on it for like three or four months. Like, I don't know. Uh, uh. And February of, um, so I started, I started, I had a degree in sociology and education. So I double majored. During my undergrad, 2011, I 
became a um a power and during the off season i would like work in the schools i would like so i started my career 2011 and then when i was going through the transitions of like playing not playing in the nfl when i was home i would you know i would kind of like substitute here i'd be at home depot delta airlines like it was just all over the place so in 2014 i was like i'm gonna be an entrepreneur and that's when I met Onitha, 2013, actually. And then February of 2014 is when um, I went from being, I started off as a para, and then I transitioned into being a substitute teacher um, the summer, the fall of 2014. And from there, it kind of just, you know, grew. And me being around our youth and me seeing that these kids who look like me are gearing up to go through the same exact thing that I was going through, I said, okay, I need to do something about this. And honestly, Sharif, that's what got me out of the dark, the deep depression was because I realized that I was needed. I'm like, yo, these kids need me, right? Like they, they need me to give them the resources to go do whatever they aspire to do. But more importantly, give them purpose on how to use their sport as a vehicle, right? Like, and and see the sport as just a vehicle and nothing else, not purpose, not like identity, but just a vehicle. And that burning desire just started to grow and grow and grow. And then in 2016, you know, I decided to leave. I decided to leave and I decided to go with Onitha to Port Richmond High School in Staten Island. And when I left, all of what I built over those, you know, two, three, I think it was maybe 2017 when we went. I, I don't remember, but I was there for four years. So um, everything that I built there left, you know, kids were reaching out, you know, Mr. Brown, it's not the same. Mr. Brown, it was just, and then the athletic program crumbled. Mm. And it was in that moment that I realized, like, I did to that school what my coaches did to me. And that was, I didn't set them up for long-term success. So in 2016, I founded uh, LEAD, and it primarily was just a sports performance training company, in which all we did was we just trained athletes physically to get faster, stronger. And then we, we made huge impacts, but my, my passion just wasn't there. It was like, man, this is cool, but still not setting these kids up for success. And then that evolved into the Lead NYC, uh, which is broken up into three uh, different initiatives. Uh, what you see behind me is the academy, social emotional learning, the athletics, uh, which is, you know, training, sports performance training, training conditioning, and then coaching, which is, um, professional development uh, for staffs and uh, parents, et cetera. And uh, it is in doing this work that has really given me purpose outside of, you know, my sport and my identity of being an athlete. And it's what's really gotten me out of that, that depressive and suicidal state that I was in. So it, it took years, you know, to be honest with you, to get out of that. But it was really just figuring out what problems I wanted to solve and how I was going to use the gifts that I had inside of me 
to solve those problems. So I had to spend, you know, thousands of dollars, you know, on therapy, on coaching, on, you know, programs, uh, and hundreds of hundred thousand dollars, hundred K later, I am the man before you today. <laughs> a champion. A champion. champion. Yes. Yes. That's right. You yes, know. Sir. So that's that's where I see the connection between you know you on the field, you know you're yeah. back on the field again, but with lead lead NYC, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and taking that championship spirit and the persistence and the grit and sharing that with others and giving them yeah. a model for that other other or the uh, ingredients for that work, you know that's Absolutely. that's awesome and and then also being the bridge bridging the gap right, bridging the gap between life on that side versus life on this side, trying to get there, what's in between. So, you know, and and that's 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 so, so, so important. And we realize that even with um, students just going to college, you know, we realize that many years ago, students graduated from high school and had no way of figuring out how to do this college thing, right? right. So now we know that, that we need to have a bridge to show kids how to go to college right. and succeed there because that's another game of persistence and pushing. Yep. Or if it's a trade program, whatever it is, there's a, it has to be a translation of the things yep. that you – Grew up learning to that new that new uh that new challenge, you know this new journey, this new experience, and so who's doing that work? I'm glad you're out there doing that work as one of the people doing Thank that you. work with Lead NYC. So that's excellent. Um, and just just in closing, if you had to give some advice to some young people in terms of what it takes to uh, be successful, not not successful in terms of uh, monetary and and um you know the the uh um the things that we buy but mm -hmm. but take being successful in terms of how do we become stable healthy human beings that's a that's a that's a phenomenal question uh, uh for me you know i would say from a holistic standpoint understanding you know first and foremost who you are you know i think that sometimes that's oftentimes neglected and getting a clear understanding of who you are and what season that you're in. You know, I think for myself, and I'm still struggling through this, I don't want to say struggling, but growing through this is that what worked for me last year may not work for me this year. And in terms of like our overall mental health and well-being, the one thing that has remained consistent is when I am physically in shape, I feel at my best. And that's what has worked for me. And studies have shown that it works for everybody. <laughs> when you take care of your physical health and you take the time and you're intentional with what you consume, you know, so for me, I'm an avid coffee drinker. Uh, caffeine is, is, is my... Um, you know, kryptonite or Achilles heel. I don't, I don't know what to describe it, but uh, coffee is just something that I love, you know, and because I love it, you know, I'm, I'm looking to open my own coffee shop, you know, and really do some of the things and tap into what I, what I love most, you know, outside of working with our youth and educators. Uh, so I would say at the found, at the foundation, there are pillars that I have. And what I try to do is I try to, I try my best into tapping into each pillar every day. And, and where I struggle is that every day is different. 
and making sure that I'm intentional on my my faith pillar, right? Making sure that I'm intentional on checking in with God and 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 and, and making sure that I'm I'm being still. And that's probably why I struggle the most because I got a six month old, I got a six year old, have a wife, I got a family. Like it's a lot of business. So me being still and actually hearing God is something that I struggle with, but I um, consistently work on. So faith is one of my pillars. Um, fitness is another pillar of mine in terms of working out, making sure that I get no minimum of three days a week of working out um, and just time for me to just like not be on my phone and just like burn off some steam. And then my fitness, make I mean, my finances is another pillar of making sure that I, you know, lock in and know what my numbers are, you know, as an entrepreneur, know what's coming in versus what's going out, trying to find different ways on how to diversify my financial portfolio uh, so that more money's coming in that I have to physically work for. <laughs> um, and then family, you know, you know, that has been this season that I'm in with my daughter being six months. I've been in a family season where if I'm not with my family, I don't feel 100% like good. I feel like something is missing. And I don't think that'll ever go away. But, you know, those pillars are the, the pillars that I try to check in with, you know, daily and then, you know, oftentimes weekly uh, so that, you know, I am just well-rounded you know, in that degree. So I guess my advice would be to, to really figure out what those pillars are for you, which ones um, are non-negotiable uh, because the ones that I mentioned are the pillars that are non-negotiable for me um, and uh, kind of go from there. Awesome, 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 awesome. And thank you so much for sharing those jewels with us today. Let me tell you, we got a lot. <laughs> and I'm sure if you listen to it again, you're going to hear a lot too in terms you can learn from yourself. I mean, you gave a lot of information and I'm full from the stuff that you just offered today. You know, and I, and I definitely want to share this with others so that they become full too. I mean, you gave a lot of insight from your experience in terms of, you know, the overcoming challenges and, and how to see things and, and being still. I think, you know, you, you say you struggle with still, but I, I, I heard stillness throughout your whole story, you know, mm -hmm. and being able to go to the NFL and see what was going on and all of the things that were happening with the money and the, and mm -hmm. the competitiveness and, and, and holding your ground and staying stable and making, you know, out of 15 to be the, uh, the third, the, one of three who made it to the yeah. team, right? You know, so that's the still, sure. stillness in your neighborhood, you know, and the chaos that was going around you and you, you know, walking to, you know, to, uh, karate and being still, with it, although there was chaos, uh, the, climbing the fence and and continuing to work out at, at Brooklyn Tech's uh, football field or track, you know, that stillness, you know, because there were a lot of things going on. You could have been in the midst of it, but you stood outside of it, you know. So you gave me a lot of examples of the stillness and, and just even grappling with, for a moment grappling with, you know, the love language, right? Yeah. And what that looks like and what that should be and holding that and being okay with that, you know, not having the answer for that. You know, that was stillness, you know. Um, so you gave a lot of examples of it and I think you're doing, I think it's actually built into you. You know, you may not realize it, but you definitely are able to be still and see things going on around you and make that decision to walk through the middle or the left path or the right path, despite the fact that, it's sometimes unclear what path you should go to. And so you wouldn't be here today if you weren't still. So you are a champion. That. Thanks for listening to Pushing Boundaries. Once again, my name is Sharif Rucker. 
If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor by commenting, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with everyone you know. All of these things are free and take very little effort, but would mean the world to me. Thanks again and stay tuned.